This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. It's now the Aseret Yimei Tshuva, the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah till Yom Kippur. With that in mind, Tali Rosenbaum and I recorded an episode of our podcast, Intimate Judaism, which addresses the issues of sex and guilt. There are ideas in that podcast which relate directly to the vidui, the confession we say at this time of the year and especially on Yom Kippur. And I hope those ideas can help make your Yom Kippur more meaningful. For this reason, I'm posting it as a bonus episode of the Orthodox Conundrum as well. I hope you enjoy, and please, as always, send your feedback to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and please share. Gemar Chatimatova. Intimate Judaism deals with sensitive topics and uses explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Intimate Judaism. I'm Tali Rosenbaum. And I'm Rabbi Scott Kahn, and we are excited to be back for the start of our third season, our 25th episode, Tali. And even though today's topic is applicable at any time, I think it's especially relevant this time of year because today we're going to talk about sex and guilt. Oh, that's interesting, Scott. I'm really looking forward to hear what you have to say about that. Make sure you visit our website, IntimateJudaism.com, for the full podcast archive, show notes, a free men's mikvah list, and more. Some people have asked how they can help us with this podcast. That is a great question, and there are three possibilities that come to mind. The first one is please go to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, and leave us a strong rating and review that really helps a lot. Second of all, share it on Facebook, Twitter, or any other way you think might work. And third of all, we now have an Intimate Judaism Patreon site. Patreon is an opportunity for people who have benefited from Intimate Judaism to support the work that Tali and I do with a small monthly payment. And in exchange, you get bonus material, episodes, merch, and more. If you enjoy Intimate Judaism, please check out our Patreon page and consider becoming an Intimate Judaism patron. The link is in the description of this podcast, and it also will be in the show notes that are attached to this podcast on our website. We thank you in advance, and we hope you enjoy the bonus material that's there. Please continue to send us your questions and comments to intimatejudaism at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make sure to visit jewishcoffeehouse.com as well as Tali's website, tallyrosenbaum.com. And actually, in the spirit of the season, Tali, I want to make an apology now to our listeners because I was thinking about this last night. I was discussing it with my wife. People write to us a lot, and some of the letters are truly heartfelt and very, very serious. And unfortunately, I don't have time to respond to everybody. In part, it's because some of these letters are very, very serious, and they deserve more than a note received, thank you for your input. It receives a really serious answer. And sometimes because of that, perhaps my own perfectionism gets in the way of my ability to write back a quick note as opposed to really responding properly. So everyone who wrote in, I'm sorry I have not responded to everybody. I will try, even those that are somewhat in the past, to respond. But keep in mind that I do read everything, and I'm sure Tali reads everything, and we appreciate your writing, and I hope you understand that it's difficult to respond to everybody all the time. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is important that we tell our listeners, especially those of you who have written and have not received a response from us, that we do ask for your forgiveness, as well as your patience, because I'm really hoping that we are going to be able to go through all of those letters and address some of the concerns that have come up. We cannot always respond to each and every one of you individually. What I do want to say as we approach, as we begin our third season, that I'm really excited for this season. As Rabbi Khan said, send in your questions and your comments, but also send in your suggestions. 
we received a suggestion that we are going to go with this season. I'm really looking forward to it. I think that our listeners are really interested in hearing more about how to enhance your intimate lives, how to enhance your sexual lives. And so we're going to have some guests, hopefully next podcast episode, to talk about different types of Eastern philosophies such as Tantra and Tao and how to incorporate them in a kosher way into your sex lives. So we're looking forward to that. Without giving away too much information, the guests that we have are Tantra practitioners, but they're also religious and very, very aware of the potential conflicts. So I think that we could talk about how to use these techniques and also how to integrate them in a way that is appropriate to our cultures and our tradition. It's going to be uh, very interesting. For the past couple of years, we've been gratified to help people all over the world open conversations about intimacy, sexuality, and Judaism. And as we're going to discuss today, these are topics that are often seen as taboo for reasons that are quite understandable. But we've discovered that so many people carry misconceptions about Judaism and intimacy and have often no community, either in person or online, where important issues regarding intimacy are discussed, people feel alone, and they lack the forum to talk about sexuality in an orthodox manner. And we're proud that Intimate Judaism has opened doors that have been assumed by many to be closed. And this introduction relates directly, Tali, to what I want to talk about today in our discussion, because frankly, my own experience as a teacher, as a rabbi, and I'm guessing it's true for many other people who are involved in this kind of work, is balancing a need to be honest about what's allowed and what's prohibited according to Jewish law, while at the same time encouraging people to talk, not to feel a sense of crippling guilt. And this balance is very, very difficult. I sometimes experience the problem of wanting people to be honest and wanting people to not feel that they are doomed or everything is wrong or whatever other emotions they may have about their experience in sex. At the same time, I don't want to pretend that something which is prohibited is allowed. As a rabbi, I can't do that. As somebody who's trying to represent halakha, Jewish law, I have to be honest about that. And this balance has always been very difficult for me, to be able to be honest about Jewish law, and of course I try to do that, and at the same time, to be encouraging and not to make people feel as though they're doing something which is so bad, there's no way they can ever get out of it. It's great that you're bringing this up. It sounds like a real dilemma as a rabbi because you're teaching ethics and values and how Jews should behave and what is permitted and what is prohibited. I think that it's important to make a distinction between behaviors that are prohibited, which are only a very small or side part of sexuality. We are all sexual human beings. It is absolutely legitimate to develop as sexual human beings. It is absolutely important to talk about our sexuality and to talk about sexual topics, body parts. We want to raise our children to feel good about themselves and about the fact that we are sexual human beings. I think that it's the ability to integrate that knowledge and understanding of ourselves with the permission to have sexual development, to feel sexual curiosity, to even feel arousal, to want to understand about sex, but then also integrate that with the knowledge that we don't necessarily have full permission to engage in every kind of sexual behavior 
particularly with others, I think that it's important to make that distinction so that it's not just about sex being taboo or sex being bad or sex being inappropriate or sex being something that has no application until marriage. Right. I think part of the problem also is that because sex covers so much of a person's identity and is so associated with a person's intimate feelings of selfhood, more than perhaps in other areas of life, perhaps more than in other areas of heter and isur, things that are allowed and prohibited, this can really create that sense of guilt. And also, Tali, an important element to mention is that in Judaism, we often distinguish between mitzvot, which are called ben adam l'chavero, interpersonal mitzvot, and mitzvot ben adam l'makom, between man and God. And when it comes to sex, it kind of covers everything and none of them. Because, for example, there's some elements of sexual laws in the Torah, which are exclusively between man and God. For example, the laws of Tarat HaMishpacha, the laws of Nida. On the other hand, if a husband or a wife betrays their partner by having an affair, that is Ben Adam Lechavero as well as Ben Adam Lechavero. It's a betrayal. It's a violation of uh, faithfulness to one's spouse. Sex covers everything. And because of that, sometimes this guilt it's very difficult to categorize it. That's very interesting that you bring that up because what I find is that the lines of betrayal regarding the partner or another person, another human being, what is considered ben adam lechavero between a person and other, as opposed to ben adam lemakom between one and God, is not always very easily distinguished by certain types of people. And also, I think it might not always be very well distinguished in our textual sources. And this is why what I've encountered, especially amongst very Haredi or Hasidish communities, is that when we encounter issues of what we might think is sexual betrayal, for example, a guy who goes to prostitutes, he will look at that issue and he will expect his wife to look at that issue as his issue between man and God. He's doing something which is prohibited and it's a problem because, you know, he has this compulsion or this addiction or this inability to deal with his own sexual regulation. And the expectation is, is that the wife see it that way too. There isn't necessarily even an expectation that she's going to see that as a betrayal to the sanctity of their marital contract, partially because it's not in the marital contract the way it is the other way around. If it's the woman who has an affair, then it is considered to be an act against God as well as an act against her husband. The same kind of problem exists, unfortunately, with sexual crimes, such as acting out on pedophilia, sexual abuse, where that's considered to be an act that a person, especially in more Haredi or Hasidic societies, that this person needs to do tshuva, but there isn't necessarily an understanding of the legal aspects of it as being a crime, but also the aspects of harm that it imposes on another person. And Tali, what you're saying I think is very important. I don't know for sure. This is conjecture. I would guess that many people would feel a stronger sense of guilt if they believe that something is against another human being, if they internalize that, rather than thinking it's exclusively a sin against God. I'll give you an example. Let's say, for example, that a guy who is single masturbates. That's obviously a sin against God, not against other people. But Something which is said in many vote and it exists in certain mystical sources, and unfortunately by being said, it can be very damaging to a person's psyche, frankly, is when you'll hear someone tell somebody that when you masturbate, all of those sperm, which are now dead, 
those millions of unborn children, you just killed them. And in so doing, somebody who says this, and yes, this is said, somebody who says this is effectively moving it from between man and God. And this is something which a person has to work out like any other violation which is exclusively between a person and God and not hurting others, now it becomes you're a murderer. You actually injured other people, which inherently, both societally and in terms of the way people think about the world, will cause a much, much greater sense of guilt than it would otherwise. So I think what you're saying is very, very important in that sense. Well, it's not only about causing guilt, it's also about liability. I mean, we look at much of the laws in the Torah as being about what is your liability and what Mm -hmm. is your compensation? What would you have to pay? We know from the Talmud, you know, when you harm another person's property or if you harm a person, you know, you have to pay restitution. So it's not only about guilt, although there are many areas in which we learn morally that we shouldn't hurt a person, we shouldn't whiten their face by, by shaming them, for example. But I think we have to understand that there's a code of law, there's a code of ethics, there's a code of moral behavior, and what's not considered humanistic behavior. And it isn't always very clear what's right. what. That can be a problem if we don't consider talking about a sexual ethic in addition to just sexual laws. I want to bring up a Talmudic story that relates directly to some of these issues when we talk about sex and guilt and intimacy and guilt. And I'm going to give my own free translation. It's a story from Masechet of Odazarah, page 17a, Daf Yudzainam and Aleph. There the Gemara relates that Rabbi Elazar ben Dordaya, there wasn't a single prostitute in the world with whom he didn't have intercourse. And one time he heard about a prostitute across the sea, and she would take a full purse of coins as payment. So he took a purse of coins, obviously a very large sum of money, and he crossed seven rivers to reach her. When they were having sex, she passed gas and said, just as this gas will not return to its place, so Elazar ben Dordaya will never be accepted as a penitent. So he then went and sat between two mountains and hills and said, mountains and hills, request mercy for me. They answered, before we ask for mercy for you, we need to ask it for ourselves. And then the Gemara provides a pasuk, a verse explaining that. He said, sky and earth, request mercy for me. They answered, before we ask for mercy for you, we need to ask it for ourselves. He said, sun and moon, request mercy for me. They answered, before we ask for mercy for you, we need to ask it for ourselves. He said, stars and constellations, request mercy for me. They answered, before we ask for mercy for you, we need to ask it for ourselves. He then finally said, the matter is dependent upon me alone. He placed his head between his knees, cried out in agony until his soul left him. A heavenly voice proclaimed, Rabbi Elazar ben Dordaya has earned the life of the world to come. Rebbe, Rabbi Hudanasi, cried and said, some acquire the world over several years, and there are those who acquire their world in a single hour. He also said, it's not enough that penitents are accepted, they're even called rabbi, because we never heard of this person being a rabbi. He is somebody who was called rabbi because of what he did, because of his success in the process of tshuva. Now, this story, Tali, has so many elements of it. There's so much to discuss. We could give many shiurim and not get to the end of it, both on a literary level, on a religious level. There's a lot to talk about. I want to emphasize a couple of elements which related directly to our topic today. So the first thing that I found very, very interesting is that his initial response isn't repentance. His initial response is to ask various inanimate objects, parts of the environment, to pray for him. Mountains, hills, sky, earth, sun, moon, stars, and constellations. I think that implicit in this story 
is that he's not willing to accept guilt at first. At first, what he's doing is asking the environment around him to pray for him, which means he's effectively blaming his environment for his own misdeeds. Yes, he knows he did something wrong, but at the same time, he's saying, it's not my fault. And in fact, if I want to go out on a limb and take it even further, in each case, it's very interesting. He doesn't ask the mountains. He asks mountains and hills, sun and moon, sky and earth, stars and constellations. It's always a pair, which sounds to me a little bit like even perhaps his upbringing. Father, mother is the obvious next one in line if we want to talk about a pair there. He's blaming his upbringing. He's blaming the stars and constellations. He's blaming the environment. Before he's willing to accept blame, he first says, it's not my fault. It's the way I was brought up. It's the world I was brought into. And yet the story itself shows that that's not true because she lived very, very far away. The only way he could reach her, the Gemara says, was by crossing over seven rivers. This was not an easy process. If anything, the environment was an impediment to his seeing this prostitute. So the fact that he was blaming the environment, he had to first learn that you can't necessarily blame everybody else. You have to be honest with yourself and say, is this really the fault of our stars or is it the fault of myself? There's a second form of avoidance here, I think, as well. You'll notice, Tali, that there are increasing levels of distance from himself. He opens up with the mountain he's sitting next to, then sky and earth, then sun and moon, then stars and constellations. In other words, things that are further and further away from him. The second form of avoidance, as I see it in this Gemara, is fine, it may be my fault, but I'm insignificant. I don't actually matter. Look at the stars and the constellations. I'm so small compared to everything out there. It's another form of avoidance. So his conclusion that ultimately it only depends upon himself means he can't blame his environment. He can't say that it doesn't actually matter. It is his fault. And according to Jewish law, yes, it does matter. And he matters. And this sense of guilt in this story is obviously brought as a net positive. It allows him to acknowledge his reality instead of avoiding consequences. But there's also one more point I want to make about this story, which I think is very, very important. Because if I were writing this story, and the point of the story is to show that a person has responsibility and has to acknowledge and emphasize his personal responsibility, and if in the story I were writing, the protagonist would ask an unrelated party to pray for him, like the mountain or the sun or whatever, I would have written that that mountain or sun would respond, sorry, buddy, this is your problem. You got to pray for yourself. But that's not what they say. What they actually say is, we have our own problems to pray for. We have our own guilt that needs to be assuaged. We normally think of the sun, the moon. These are guiltless. And they're saying, no, we're not. We've got our own our own cheshbon, our own calculations with God we have to worry about. And in terms of this last point, and all of these points, this relates directly to that first idea I mentioned about being a rabbi and people coming and discussing various ideas with me. So many people believe that they are the only one who ever did anything like this. They believe that no one else could possibly be as guilty as I am because people don't necessarily talk about this with each other for understandable reasons, as I said. Since people often don't discuss these issues, therefore, the sense of crippling guilt, and I use that term repeatedly, becomes sometimes overwhelming because they don't believe anyone else has ever been as bad as I am now. I'm the only person in the Orthodox world who's like this. Maybe I should just leave. Maybe I should give up. There's no way I can actually fix it. And this Gemara, I see it as saying, even those elements outside of you, you think they're so guiltless? 
Don't be so sure. So there's that element which can actually be encouraging, saying, don't be so sure you're the only one. Everyone's got his own problems. Everyone has his own thing to deal with. And you're not necessarily the only person out there. The sun and the moon, they look guiltless. All those people around you, you think they're totally okay. Everyone got his problems. Don't feel so alone. Don't feel you're the only person in that sense. I think that's very important. I'll hand it over to you in a second, Tali, but Ralph Steinsaltzatzal once said, and I'm quoting him now, many people come to talk to me privately, and many of these conversations are confessions of sins. So I have heard lots of confessions. I have to tell you that people haven't invented a new sin in the last 3,000 years. Sometimes you wish to hear some new combination, some new idea, but you never find it. This is from a book called Pebbles of Wisdom, which was a collection of various things that he said. And that's exactly it. People feel because they don't talk about these issues, they feel no one else is doing this. No one could be as guilty as I am. And yet at the same time, this is the balance. Don't be so despondent. Don't feel so hopeless. You are not alone. There are other people who do this kind of thing. Yet at the same time, that's not an excuse not to take personal responsibility. You don't have to blame the world around you. It is your responsibility to do what Halacha said if you are someone who buys into the idea of following Halacha, following Jewish law. You do have a responsibility towards other people. You do have a responsibility towards God. At the same time, despondence, crippling guilt are not the right type of response. The response is to fix it. Thanks for that story. There's so much to explore both in the literary aspect of it as an allegory and the meanings of the environment, but also in terms of what it's trying to teach. And I think you brought some very nice explanations. There were several things that struck me in the story. One is the familiarity of these sort of allegories about the power of the sexual drive. We have many of these types of stories where there's an illustration of a man climbing a tree or climbing mountains, making an effort to reach this pinnacle of desire and excitement. And it's a journey. It, it really kind of depicts a journey which is related to desire. What is desire and how strong and forceful desire can be. I think that what is particularly interesting about the beseeching of the sun and the moon and the constellations and the sky and the earth is the message that between internalizing and externalizing. And I think what we saw in this story is an externalization of sin and of repentance. Pray for me, help me, do for me forgive hmm. me, tell me how to go reach my forgiveness. And the message here is it's really inside of yourself. If you can reach inside yourself, like we're all working on doing in our own processes, reach inside yourself, understand yourself, and even forgive yourself that much of that anxiety and guilt and shame that you carry can be soothed by your own process of self-forgiveness, and that might be a humbling way to then approach your creator with more understanding of your vulnerability and of your guilt and of your weaknesses, rather than come to an external force, whether it be the environmental factors or God himself, and say, just forgive me, without you doing your own internal work, your own internal reflection. But I know I did all these bad things. Just hand me forgiveness. And it doesn't work that way. There needs to be some sort of internal process. And I think the story of 
all of the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth. And I think that that really, really reflects that at the end of the day, it's a process that's inside of you. And Talia, a real indication that what you said is correct is that God doesn't appear in this entire story. There's a heavenly voice. But when he decides it depends upon me, it doesn't say he starts praying to God. He put his head between his knees and started crying out in agony, and then he died. And apparently, when he's told afterwards, or when the world is told through that heavenly voice, that echo that he's been invited to the world to come, it means that Something did change, but it was all internal. It's not a matter of prayer. It was a matter of perhaps understanding who he was and what he did. The fact that he does not pray to God overtly in this story is, I think, a crucial element of what's going on. Yes, we do say, Repentance, prayer, and charity remove the harshness of the decree. But even there, Note that prayer and repentance are two separate processes. Repentance and prayer are not synonymous, and prayer is not part of repentance. It's something one does in addition to repentance. The process of repentance per se, the Rambam and others tell us, is regret over what happened, acceptance not to do it again, and confessing the sin before God. That's mentioning what happened and acknowledgement. Prayer is something different, which is important, but not in this internal process per se, because this process is about internal change, knowing who you are, determining that one's going to change. And I think also along with that comes a process of self-forgiveness. I think it's also interesting that in this story and in other stories that we talked about, if you remember the story with Rav Chiyabar Ashi, where he puts his head in the oven, he is so racked with guilt, and he also dies at the end of the story. These are probably not the only stories where a Tana or sage is racked with guilt to the extent that he loses his life and vitality. There's probably a message in that too, um, maybe a little bit of a, of a scary or threatening message. What do you have to say about that? Why die? I'm not sure. There's a lot of discussion about that particular point. When I was studying this particular piece of Gemara, I do know the Marshad talks about it. And in fact, he's a completely different interpretation. As I recall it, I looked at it quickly, but as I recall it, I think he says that he's actually asking all of the sun and the moon, which don't die, to pray that he shouldn't die. And in the end, he didn't get that. That was sort of a different way of reading it all together. So that means you don't always get what you want, even with tshuva. You certainly don't always get what you want, yes. In a story like this, which is effectively, and I say this respectfully, effectively like, like a fairy tale, a story right. that's trying to give a message, it's trying to give a deeper understanding, the fact that he dies in the end might mean that he became a different person. I think there are many ways of looking at it. Obviously, someone could look at it as because the only way he could be forgiven is if he died. I can't say that's a wrong reading of it. It's not the way that I would read it, though. Yeah, I like that. That gives a lot of options for how we want the story to end. So I want to move on to a different point that emerges from this story that you mentioned when you talked about forgiving yourself. And that relates directly to the vidui, the confession that we say during Slichot and especially on Yom Kippur, which opens up with the words ashamnu bagadnu. Ashamnu means we have become guilty. Bagadnu means we have betrayed. And obviously those are the two key words we've mentioned until now. I want to cite an idea said by Rav Shagar. That's his nickname. His name was actually Rav Shimon Gershon Rosenberg, and he died in 2007. Shimon Gershon Rosenberg, the initials are Shagar. He was part of the national religious community, and an important part of his scholarly work is dealing with modern questions, and in particular, the philosophical challenges posed by postmodernist thought. He has a book, which is a collection of his talks for Slichot and Rosh Hashanah, and he cites Rav Cook's Orot HaTshuvah, and he explains that when a person says confession, when he says vidui, the real purpose isn't so much to 
express culpability per se or to feel guilt in itself, but rather it's to acknowledge that such a thing as sin exists. He says most of the time, we don't even believe there's such a thing as sin because perhaps we don't think we're important enough. As I mentioned in that story, I'm worthless. I don't matter. So sin doesn't exist. Sin only happens if you actually have the power to do something. I don't understand what you're saying. I'm not sure I get that. Sin only can be a real thing if somebody has agency, if somebody actually matters. If I press a button on my desk, nobody knows, it doesn't matter. If an admiral on a battleship presses a button, thereby sending a missile to an enemy country, he's done something very different because he actually has the ability to affect things. Only somebody who actually matters can affect something. When it comes to sending missiles, I don't matter, but the admiral does. In terms of damaging a relationship, if I actually can damage a relationship, then there was a relationship there. Ironically, it means that I actually matter. If there's such a thing as sin, it implies he actually matters. There's a strange, almost ironic sense of empowerment by saying, I actually can sin. I can do something wrong, which means that I matter. Because someone who doesn't matter can't do anything wrong. If someone cares about what I do, whether it's another person or God, that must mean that I have value. I'm an important person. Well, the whole tekes, the ritual of the bar mitzvah, includes the father's kind of handing over the agency to the child. I am now no longer culpable for my child's sins. My child can now right. be responsible for his own sins. It's actually punishments rather than right. sins. But the ability to be punished means that you actually have agency. And you have value. And similarly, the ability to betray means there's someone whom you betrayed. It means there actually is a relationship there that's real. If there's no relationship, there can be no betrayal. You can't betray somebody you don't know. But if you betray somebody, that must mean there's some sort of covenant between you. And let me quote something which he says. This is, again, my own free translation. I think it's a very powerful paragraph. Rav Shagar writes, One does not do a sin. One is guilty of sin. The idea of sin is not dependent upon an action, but upon the guilt associated with it. Guilt is never something imposed upon me from without, rather what I by myself place upon myself, which Tali is exactly what you were saying before. Guilt awakens shame, but through this shame, I am born. I exist as a sinner, as a betrayer, as a vessel filled with shame and embarrassment, but I do exist. I exist before God. A person who betrays another doesn't betray someone anonymous. He betrays a friend, someone whom we're commanded, you shall love your friend as yourself. And friendship exists both regarding people and regarding God. If I can betray somebody, that must mean that I have a relationship with him, which means that I matter. And if I can betray God, that must mean that I have a friendship with God. And this is where people get tripped up. Betrayal doesn't mean the friendship is over. It means you have to rectify the friendship, which is very different. And when a person, quote unquote, betrays God, he's acknowledging that there actually is a relationship and a friendship which gives himself meaning and is self-empowering. I do matter. So in this sense, the vidui isn't so much making yourself feel like you're worthless. It actually accomplishes the opposite. It's saying, I am an important person. I am important enough to say that there is a relationship here which needs repair. If I were right now, Tali, to go and insult the president of the United States, he would not care because I have the relationship with him and I do not matter in his world. I am not part of his world. Yeah, you're the worst. I am the worst. But if I know I were that to... rabbi in Beit Shemesh, he's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can we say that? Trust me. If you were to go and tweet about me, it would probably be the most incredible thing for my career that could ever possibly happen. But if I betray God and I believe that God actually cares about that, 
that means that I really am empowered and I matter, and that there is a friendship here, there is a relationship, there is a covenant. And we can reframe confession and the experience of guilt, this feeling of guilt that you impose upon yourself, as an affirmation of value. And I think these are all ideas that emerge from that story I said before of Rabbi Lazar ben Dordaya. I like what you're saying, and I think that it has applications to intimacy and the development of relationships. And this is really about intimacy with God and the idea of having an actual relationship with God, which is very much to some extent about first having a relationship with yourself. Do I matter? Do I count? Do I have agency? Do I have autonomy? Do I have choice? Do I act out of ethical considerations? Do I act out of desire? Do I figure out a way to balance both? And do I sometimes fail? And am I responsible for those failures? And can I come before God with this feeling of I'm acknowledging and taking responsibility for having failed you or betrayed you? And I think that this has so many applications as well for relationships. And I think we talked about this last year at this time when we did our podcast on Shuvan repentance. And we also talked about accountability and regret and how in order to do so in a relationship, we also need to have this template for how we do it with ourselves and with God. And I think that this idea of needing to have your own sense of self, your own acknowledgement and awareness of your own value, because without a sense of value of yourself, you don't feel like there's any impact no matter what you do. You can press buttons. You can choose to behave in any way you want. What difference does it make to anybody? That's going to set up a situation where you really don't feel like that you have any impact in the world and there really isn't any need to be accountable for your actions. And I think that that's true in a, in a marital relationship as well. You need to understand that everything you do you have an impact. You have an impact on yourself. You have an impact on your partner. And so a good relationship is based on two people, each of whom have a good sense of themselves and a good relationship with themselves. And I think a lot of this relates directly to the idea of consent, because obviously, apart from the criminal aspects of consent, a big part of someone not consenting is essentially not treating them as somebody with agency, not treating them as somebody who matters. You're using them as a vehicle for your own gratification rather than allowing a relationship to develop. And apart from, as I said, apart from the, the evil aspects of it, simply in terms of relationship understanding, if a person doesn't have agency to consent, there's something fundamentally wrong that's lacking in that relationship. And that's why we see hierarchical relationships as lacking the ability to be intimate relationships. And in this aspect of our relationship with God, in how we feel shame and how we betray him, we're actually coming to God, not from the position of hierarchy, although we obviously have those relationships as well. He's the king. We're not royalty. He is royalty, and he is the decisor, and he is the judge. So we certainly have that aspect. But in the aspect of how did we betray you? How did we fail you? we really look more at the marital relationship between God and the Jewish people, that it's a covenant, that it's kind of a contract. You have your resources that you provide us with, and in exchange for that, we are true to your expectations of us. And I think that this also provides the opportunity for these intimacy skills like trust 
and respect and compassion and forgiveness and understanding and empathy. So before we conclude, Tali, let me ask you in your role as a therapist, what would you recommend to people who feel a sense of crushing guilt because of their looking at sexual misconduct as they might see it in the past, whether it is against another person or whether it's Ben Adam al-Makom, a person's relationship with God? How would you say they should overcome that from your perspective? Well, I think we need to understand more about it. I don't think that we can make a blanket statement about what people should do about guilt. Sometimes guilt is appropriate. If you've done something that has hurt somebody else, sitting with the feelings of guilt can be very, very important to process. Having the guilt is an indication that you have conscience and that you feel badly about the implications of what has happened. I think we also have said before on this podcast that guilt is I've done something wrong and shame is I am something wrong. And to be able to make that differentiation so that we understand that what we have done in our lives or mistakes that we have made or poor decisions that we have made does not necessarily define who we are. And in a case where we might have hurt somebody, being able to take accountability for that can be very healing, both for the individual and for the relationship for the person whom you've hurt. In cases where it's between God and man, I think that also being able to do that introspection, look inside yourself, understand what led you to whether it was acting out or making a conscious choice, having a better understanding of how we behave the way that we behave helps in the process of self-awareness, self-compassion, self-forgiveness, and ultimately feeling like we can live with ourselves, even if we do something and even if we do feel guilty about it. And also being aware that our quote-unquote partner, in this case being God, if we're talking about tshuva, repentance, it's also about our expectation that we have a loving merciful God, that God loves us at the end of the day, that he will forgive us because he loves us and he cares about us. And I think that when we love ourselves and care about ourselves and acknowledge our failures and acknowledge our imperfections and also do our best to make amends to people whom we've hurt, I think that we have a clear conscience. And when we have a clear conscience, I think it's just easier to expect that God will clear us, so to speak, as well. I don't really want to pat ourselves on the back too much. That's not my goal here. But I do think that conversations like the one we're having now, opening it up and allowing people to realize that they're not alone. Again, this is something which I've seen repeatedly, that people think they're the only one. They don't believe that anyone else could possibly be as bad as I am. And this specifically comes to play and comes into play when people are talking about sex because it's so private and because there's so many elements of guilt that are associated with it. Hopefully, having conversations like this and what we do in general on this podcast will allow people to realize that while Jewish law has certain demands, they are not alone in not always being able to or being successful in fulfilling those demands, at least when it comes to between 
a person and God, they should allow themselves to forgive themselves as they try at the same time to always make sure that they're doing their best to keep Jewish law, but to forgive themselves and understand that we do have a forgiving God who wants them to forgive themselves and wants to forgive them too, and recognizes the difficulties that are involved. I think that that is going to be a very soothing message to our audience. I think we also need to acknowledge that there are social and cultural factors in addition to religious teachings that can very much contribute to that overall feeling of guilt and of shame. And that what we need to be able to do in our, and we do this through our podcast and through our improving sexual education and decreasing the taboos around sexuality is to decrease some of those feelings of guilt and shame around sexuality, that sexuality is normal, that sexual development is normal, that sexual desire and sexual arousal are all a normal part of being a human being. And that if we take everything that has to do with sex, unless it's you know, marital sex at the right time, and we put it into this one big box of guilt and shame and conflict, then we are actually perpetuating that type of belief and that type of thinking. So I think that the idea that being able to look at our sexuality, whether you're married, whether you're single, being a sexual human being is part of being human, and there is no need to feel guilt or shame for sexual feelings or for sexual curiosity, but to understand what is basically expected of us in terms of channeling our sexuality and how that comes about in our lives. Okay, well, with that, Tali, I guess we'll end this episode. As Tali said at the beginning, we're very excited about some of the topics that we have in mind for the rest of this upcoming season. We'll be releasing every month. Please at the same time, continue to write to us at IntimateJudaism at JewishCoffeeHouse.com with your questions and also, as Tali mentioned, your suggestions. We like hearing from you, and we're always looking for good ideas of new topics that should be discussed and need to be discussed and that you want to be discussed. Go to JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Go to Tali's website, Tali Rosenbaum. That's T-A-L-L-I, two L's, TaliRosenbaum.com. Make sure to check out IntimateJudaism.com, where we have the full podcast archive and lots of other stuff as well. Go to our Patreon page. You can find the link in the description of this podcast. Check it out. There's some stuff there you'll really enjoy. And Shana Tova to everybody and Gamar Khatima Tova. Gamar Khatima Tova. Thank you for joining us. Bye.